Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. On Friday, Governor J.B. Pritzker and state officials introduced an extension of sorts of a multi-state infrastructure plan. This version of Rebuild Illinois has plenty of projects in the multi-billion dollar plan for the Peoria area. You can read about them in a story at WMBDRadio.com. But here, you will hear Pritzker speak about the overall plan, then Illinois Department of Transportation Secretary and Peoria resident, Omer Osman. Back in 2019, I signed our historic bipartisan $45 billion infrastructure program into law. And in the four years since, Rebuild Illinois has set in motion a full-scale revitalization of our state's infrastructure. With $12.1 billion already out the door, we've completed renovations on more than 5,300 miles of highway and over 500 bridges, on top of more than 750 additional accessibility and safety improvements. You truly cannot drive, bike, or walk anywhere throughout the Prairie State without seeing and feeling the impact of Rebuild Illinois. But Rebuild Illinois isn't just about roads and bridges. It's also about expanding and upgrading all aspects of our infrastructure, and that includes broadband access and healthcare institutions, universities and community colleges, airports, river ports, state parks, railroads, innovation hubs, and so much more. From Chicago and Rockford to Springfield and Decatur to Carbondale and Metropolis, every region of our state is getting a much-needed upgrade, and there's much more to come. Today, I couldn't be prouder to announce IDOT's new MYP multi-year program, our largest construction program in state history. Over the next six years, we're investing over $40 billion to improve all modes of transportation across our great state. And that means better roads and bridges, modernized transit and aviation, and expanded and faster passenger rail service. It even extends to improved river ports, new sewers and water infrastructure, and a huge upgrade to bicycle and pedestrian accommodations. We are dedicating more than $27 billion alone to upgrade another 3,000 miles of roads and 9.85 million square feet of bridges. By the time we're done, 96% of state interstates will have been improved, and that's a stark contrast to the state of our infrastructure when we first passed Rebuild Illinois just four and a half short years ago. And when it comes to other forms of transportation, we're investing nearly $14 billion into 44 transit, 27 rail, 30 water ports, and 334 airport projects. Rebuild Illinois has increased safety, efficiency, and opportunities for residents all over the state. And over the next few years, we will keep building on that progress with all 102 counties of Illinois included in our MYP. There are too many projects to name today, but each one is anchored in the goal of enhancing the lives of Illinoisans. Here in Springfield, we've hit the ground running with lane expansions, bridge repairs and resurfacing for sections of US 24, Illinois 97, Illinois 125, and I-55, to name just a few. 
We're replacing bridges from Banner to Kingston Mines in Peoria and revitalizing the Bloomington Normal Public Transit System. We're repairing ramps from Decatur to Forsyth, uh, completing ADA improvements from Illinois 121 to US 36 in Decatur and much more. All across Illinois, we're setting ourselves up for success with the best infrastructure in the nation. I cannot understate the breadth and size of this MYP. On top of touching every mode of transportation, it reaches every corner of the land of Lincoln, all while creating and supporting hundreds of thousands of good paying jobs. At the end of the day, Rebuild Illinois isn't just about infrastructure. It's a comprehensive plan that's rejuvenating neighborhoods that have been underserved for far too long. It's an economic boost, raising property values and providing workers with mobility to seek even better paying jobs. And it's a community-based plan, connecting people with safe, reliable and accessible transportation to get where they're going. At its core, Rebuild Illinois is about what matters most, and that's our people. And together we are building an Illinois that will outlast all of us, leaving a better and more prosperous future for generations to come. To the members of the General Assembly who are here and those who have not joined us this morning, to the city leaders, the entire Illinois Department of Transportation, and of course, all local officials across the state, thank you for making these historic investments come to life. And with that, it is my pleasure to turn it over to the best state transportation secretary in the nation, and that's our Secretary of Transportation, Omar Osman. Thank you. Thank you so much, Governor. You are, you are way too kind to me, but we'll talk about that race later on. But good morning. Good morning and welcome to the Illinois Department of Transportation. Thank you, Governor Prisker, for your leadership in making another landmark day in Illinois transportation possible. I just wanted to start by acknowledging the storms that rolled through this area just last week. You can still see the damage just down the streets from here. At IDOT, we have a long, long history of helping out in times of crisis. They are part of Tangerman County, Morgan, and Hancock counties is still trying to get on their feet. These are our neighborhoods, our hometowns. Our employees take a great pride in where they live and work. We still have crews out assisting these impacted communities, and I know they are committed to doing whatever it takes to get the job done. It is what we do here at IDOT. With that, welcome Mayor Busher, senators, representatives, local officials, partners, stakeholders, and friends. This agency has been my home for more than 34 years now, and the people who work here are very, very special to me. I wanted to take a few moments to acknowledge some of my staff in the crowd. Deputy Secretary Terry Glavin, Deputy Secretary uh, LaMarche, both of them are new and they are doing fantastic. Job Director of Highway, our Chief Engineer Steve Tribe is here. Director Bienemann, uh, he, she's the Director of Office of Planning and Programming. And of course, Region 4 Engineer, this is the Region 4 area, Jeff Myers, who whose team have helped put this together. Thank you uh, for you and your team. Other regionals, our uh, engineers are here from across the state. You can tell who they are because they are dressed up pretty good today. So, 
but critical, critical uh, to making this day happen is our office of planning and programming staff. Uh, the, the leadership of Director Bienemann, talking about Tracy Sisk, I'm talking about uh, Bonderhoff, Mr. Dayton, their entire staff have worked night and day to make this day possible. And my thank you to many, many others, of course. But this multi-year program we are releasing today is perhaps the most significant ever for the Illinois Department of Transportation, showcasing the real strength and impact of rebuilt Illinois. At 41 billion, approximately $41 billion over six years, it is the largest multi-year program in our state history. We literally will have projects touching each and every one of the 102 counties in our great state. The program identifies $27 billion to invest in our roads and bridges over the next six years, including $4.6 billion for this upcoming fiscal year. What does that mean? That is roughly 10% increase over six years if you compare multi-year program to multi-year program, and it does represent 25% increase in FY24 if you compare it to FY23. But that is due in large part to the engineering and planning effort in the early years of capital program is starting to result in more construction activity and work on the street. And for the first time in almost a decade, we are releasing a combined multimodal, multi-year program which the governor outlined for you. Just as important, the governors, at, and this is at the governor's direction, we are continuing to explore new ways to deliver projects more effectively and efficiently. If you recall last year, IDOT received authority uh, from the governor and the General Assembly to use alternative project delivery on certain projects. You will see in this multi-year program a total of 16 potential, underlying potential, projects anticipated to cost 400, some $475 million. We have identified uh, those projects for the non-traditional delivery method um, as we go along. As always, though, we will be proceeding with an unwavering commitment to provide equity and build a workforce that reflect the diversity of our great state. It remains and, uh, and it will be the blueprint for how we rebuild Illinois. Governor J.B. Pritzker and Illinois Department of Transportation Secretary Omer Osman. More Week in Review coming up. The public health emergency of the COVID-19 pandemic has been over for a while now. It's given people plenty of time to think about what we've learned and how we can better treat COVID in the future. People like University of Illinois College of Medicine infectious disease specialist Dr. Doug Casper who talked recently with WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio. We've had a nice low period here for a long time. Uh, in hospitals, we've seen really sustained low COVID cases. In fact, we actually had a period where we had zero people uh, in the hospital with COVID, which was the first time since the beginning uh, that we had achieved that. And so it's been remarkable even with transmission occurring in the community, you still hear people get um, test positive and have some symptoms. But in the hospital, we've seen really low activity, sometimes even no activity of COVID, which has been quite remarkable. I mean, we forgot what that was like 
uh, to not have patients on COVID isolation or have wards, COVID wards. And so uh, it's been slow as far as hospitalized information, but the wealth of research information continues to kind of trickle out. And the things you've seen or you're going to start to hear a little bit more about are starting to connect some genetic predisposition to people that have struggled with long COVID. I think that's a very emerging area is that as the acute COVID illness has really declined, the investigation into long COVID and those that might be set up if they were exposed again, there was another wave that's really started to emerge. What are some of the symptoms remind me of long COVID? What, what, What do we know about that? Yeah, that's the that it's like sixty five uh, symptoms oh, of really? almost any body. <laughs> yeah, so it which is really where now the the key ones seem to be nervous system related. So they have to do with your body's ability to regulate function. It's almost like uh, we all have an internal thermostat. Things that we do all day, whether it's temperature regulation or blood pressure regulation that we don't think about, we don't, they're automated. And so those, when those systems get off is where people really have challenge because these aren't things that we control, you know, through typical mechanisms, they're kind of on autopilot. And so nervous system related symptoms seem to be the most common that are as far as debilitating long-term. And there does seem to be some genetic uh, uh, connection between people that have reported really sustained symptoms, you know, Mm -hmm. in a year or longer, uh, that there's something that's probably connecting them. You know, uh, having cancer, people either walk by my house, I have a few retired doctors, and they go, hey, good, read this article, or here's a book, or I get sent all this stuff from people. And uh, one of them was a study about what they called the ridiculously healthy or the stupid healthy. Three generations of people who never have had any major disease in three generations. And of the study, they found out that their gut biome, the bacteria, everything in there, was almost identical. And I know before uh, we stopped doing you on a regular basis, interviewing you on a regular basis, you were... I said one of these days I got to come on and talk about the gut. We're we're still trying to figure out, but somewhere in there is a secret to why people get sick or don't get sick. Yeah, um, gut biome is a makeup of your immune system and in your diet, and so there's likely a connection that when people have similar gut biomes, they there it's because they're eating the same diet, which is pretty common in most families, and so. Uh, raw foods, especially fermented foods, are very high in uh, natural bacteria, healthy bacteria that populate our gut. And so you see commercials for yogurt or you hear about probiotics, but there are diets that support this on their own. And so um, there's a very strong connection between gut health and overall health. And it's it's tricky because it's unique. You know, we all eat differently and we where we live is a little different, but uh, eventually there will be individualized ways to figure this out, meaning somebody could sample your gut biome when you're healthy, and then if you're unhealthy down the road, they could seek to, to restore that. And so that is something that's done at a research grade level, but I'd expect there, you know, in the next decade or so, that's something that might even become more commonplace. Yeah, speaking of fermented, I've been eating a lot of kimchi. My gut feels better, but I smell a lot. <laughs> People who have long COVID, 
Could there have been an underlying condition that was undetected that weakened that particular area, nervous system or whatever, and the virus just fed on it? Yeah, there's likely a, it's likely genetic, meaning that there's some expression of genes that um, is seen in you know a certain percentage of the population, and that's just hereditary. Um, and that setup, when exposed to COVID, is more likely to develop conditions. And these things are tricky. We do some genetic screening already. You've heard about them in cancer conditions, whether it's breast cancer or ovarian cancer. Genetic screening is fairly common. But broad spread, broad across our community, we don't screen for genetic conditions unless your family is known to have something. And so that, again, is kind of a tricky subject because you start to get into predictors, you know, and predictors might mean only 10% or 15%, but meaning would you want to know if you were predicted to have a condition sure. if you were much younger? And so, but those things are probably parts of medicine that will also continue to, to emerge after COVID uh, research is, is kind of completed. Well, it's kind of uh, ironic, though, we're talking about this. Greg and I both know a couple of people who had recently gotten COVID. Yeah, within the last three weeks. I have yeah. two good friends who got real yeah. sick, too. They were yeah. they were they didn't go to the hospital. But. Right. Uh, Doug, real quick, before we leave, uh, Dr. Doug Castro is with us one more time after all these years of uh, chatting with us every week. Um, where Where is it headed now? The, and I, It, meaning COVID-19, What's what's the next thing? Will will we have a resurgence of some variant? Will will we be talking about it again anytime soon in, in a daily or national way? What do you predict? And Greg, can I pr- yeah. piggyback on that yeah. a little bit too? Yeah, because yeah. Doug's talked yeah, about how we have prepared, and recently on the debt relief bill, a lot of people said, well. Whatever's around the corner, we haven't put enough infrastructure in. So I want Doug to comment on that. Are, are we better prepared for whatever comes next, too? Yeah, locally, you've seen a story released yesterday about funding for Tazewell County Health Building, which is directly an outcome of um, you know situations that went through with COVID and a commitment to the community to for public health and public health resources. Nationally, um, what you're going to see is there will be more cases in the fall. That doesn't necessarily mean there'll be more hospitalizations. But the idea on the, on the front, uh, vaccine front is instead of creating vaccines that are targeted to emerging variants, is to actually work backwards and try to create a vaccine that, that would catch COVID at a higher level on its family tree. So then mm-hmm. rather than waiting for like, you know, grandchildren and great-grandchildren to go back as far as you can and try to find a vaccine that would catch um, COVID at a level that those individual mutations might not be so important. Got and it. so that's a that would maybe be a much more durable, long-lasting vaccine that we wouldn't worry as much about individual changes. And that could be used for across other disease states as well, meaning influenza and other things that we've talked about. But I'm sure you'll hear more about changes to vaccination, especially going into the fall period. And then structurally, as Dan's question, uh, we're, we're um, are we we're better prepared, like building new buildings and research, we're, we're research. distribution. That's, that mechanism's all yeah. happening. Communi- communication networks, meaning like epidemiology, being able to detect changes is certainly uh, one of the best successes that came from COVID. Is just international communication is much greater. But like anything, um, you know, local uh, interest is based on activity, meaning you have to have 
you know, it has to be something that remains significant to put uh, to put um, funds into. And so right now, it's nice because it's low, but we'll see what drives that in the future. Dr. Doug Casper with OSF Healthcare and the University of Illinois College of Medicine. More Week in Review, coming up. The central Illinois area is very fortunate to have a robust medical community, even in some of the smallest parts of the area. Carl Health has put an important piece of technology to that end in its Pekin Hospital. The facility now has advanced breast cancer screening technology, the newest version of what's called ABUS, that can provide a more advanced screening for breast cancers that otherwise might not have been detected in a routine breast cancer screening. You'll hear from Carl Health Peak and registered diagnostic medical stenographer Jennifer Gardner in a moment. But first, here's Carl Health Director of Medical Imaging Services Ryan Morris speaking recently with reporters. This new center for Pekin, I would say, um, with all the advanced equipment we have here, it's kind of a hidden gem here in Pekin. It's a, it's a space where women um, can go and get um, the advanced testing they need without having to leave the community. Um, and it's just one of those things where we work very hard to have the skill and technology to uh, take care of our community. For folks who don't know, tell us uh, what you've added and, and what, what's new. So over the last um, few years, we've added, uh, we already had our 3D MAMO system in place. Um, we've added a lateral arm, which uh, helps the radiologist um, with guidance during their biopsy. Um, we've added a DEXA scanner, which is uh, for bone density. Um, we were the first in the area to have the uh, new DEXA scanner that has the TBS, uh, trabecular bone scoring system. Um, and then we added our automated breast ultrasound, um, also known as ABUS. Um, we have one in the Peoria um, area up at Methodist, um, and then this is what one introduced to this community. Um, and it's like we've already heard that it's helped out, you know, with our patient we just talked about, um, has helped out tremendously already and looks to uh, pair up as a gold standard um, with the for dense breasts with the screening ultrasound or screening mammals. Why was it important to send to be able to have something here and not necessarily send folks to Methodist? Um, I think just for the have something in our community, to, you know, to support this local community. It's a little, little bit of a distance from here to uh, Methodist. Uh, the demand is actually higher as well um, with this new technology, um, and so we want to be able to get patients in in a timely manner without them having to wait for long periods. Um, healthcare <laughs> deserts and kind of the importance of this facility to Central Illinois. Yeah, so uh, again, with Pekin being a little ways away from um, the Peoria area, um, just so we don't create a healthcare desert here and not have the technology in this uh, smaller community, um, there's been large investments by this Pekin Foundation in making sure that we're able to keep up on the technology and have advanced technology throughout this community. You had said you talked about, I guess, during the ceremony, the, the patient earlier that has already been helped out by this. Can you kind of the recap for those of us who didn't hear. So one of our uh, patients, um, actually during our first week of um, getting the automated breast ultrasound, um, we were going through and doing um, our uh, training. And so we have patients that volunteer to have this done and one of our employees had volunteered. And um, with that, she uh, had already had her screening done two months ago and they found a lesion um, on her breast. 
um, with the automated breast ultrasound that they did not find on the original screening, and which is the entire intent of combining the two to make it a gold standard for screenings. How far in general has, has technology come when it comes to breast cancer screenings and, and detecting these things as early and as perhaps otherwise unidentifiable as this was? Uh, the technology advancements have been um, pretty unreal in the last probably 15 years, um, going from uh, film uh, to going to a digital platform to now a 3D platform. Um, which actually stacks the images in layers to where you can see what's going on there, and then now producing supplementary um, studies such as the automated breast ultrasounds. So it's almost becoming commonplace then that you're able to find these things that were otherwise not able to be found before. Yeah, it's uh, detection um, at a sooner um, time is becoming uh, definitely prevalent where they're actually finding them. Um, the importance of getting in and getting your screening done is key um, so that you're not going uh, years without uh, to get in and get that screening done on an annual basis is uh, very important so that we're able to detect these using this advanced technology. You told us a little bit about the health benefits of this, but is there any risk? Um, with ultrasound, there's not um, really a risk. There is an associated cost with the um, ABUS, so there's the financial part of it, but as far as with uh, benefits worth of being ultrasound, that does not have an inherent risk like uh, some other studies would with radiation, so it does not have that radiation aspect. What are the costs um, kind of for these scans for the patient? Um, typically, screenings are covered with an insurance. Um, as far as if you add the technology like ABUS, um, that still goes through a um, typical in insurance grid um, to where it depends on what your insurance covers. But often with the ABUS, you still have to meet the deductible, um, so it does have some, can have some added cost. But we do have um, our foundation, which uh, we have our bikers for Tata funds, um, things like that, to where we're able to help out those who uh, need uh, funding to get their studies done, to keep keep them coming in, getting those screenings done as they should be. Uh, has it become easier over the years for patients to be able to deal with those costs? Like, has it been insurance, been more understanding or helpful and that sort of thing? Yeah, so actually, um, with uh, 3D MAMA, when that came out um, a few years ago, otherwise known as uh, TOMO, um, there was actually uh, uh, legislation that went through to, uh, to where it was able to be covered by insurance, um, like a typical screening. Um, it was one of those things where as a director at the time, um, I actually wrote letters and talked to the legislation just about you know supporting it, and it was unanimously, unanimously supported through the state of Illinois. Um, as far as some of the others, as they add technology, um, they will go through and try to uh, get it to where it's funded as a screening part, but it's one of those things where it takes some time to get to that point. Um, but uh, again, um, there's grant money out there. There's opportunities to support our patients that um, aren't, able to, aren't able to afford to get that done so that we're able to get them in to get their screenings done. Is there more that needs to be done legislatively, or do you think you've, you've got it at this point? Um, I think with ABUS being the new technology, I think getting that in the same line as uh, the 3D MAMOs, where it's considered to be part of the screening, would be um, great. How do you uh, determine who's eligible for this? Do you just recommend it to everybody? So um, it's advertised to everyone so that in the future, if they develop dense breasts, but it is um, actually for the ABUS technology or the automated breast ultrasound, it is uh, women with dense breasts um, that are recommended to have this done. And so during their screening process, it's identified with uh, BIRAD scores where they um, determine within the report whether they have dense breasts or not. And it's those uh, patients that get um, a letter of recommendation to have that done. And then their physician will uh, deter you know, review that and determine whether they need it and order it that way. Had my, I'm 38, had my baseline mammogram at 37, um, like you're supposed to do before for a screening. And everything came back fine. Um, 
it didn't see anything. Um, we finally purchased the Abus machine here in March. In April, I was on the schedule to be um, a patient to train with. And so I had that done um, end of April, and it came back with a possible four millimeter um, lesion in my left breast and um, was recommended to get a targeted ultrasound. Had the targeted ultrasound done by one of my coworkers and friends, and it um, did show a mass, and that was recommended to get biopsied. So I had that biopsied on the 9th um, of June, and it came back that Monday as an adenomyoepithelioma, which is super, super rare. Um, not a lot of the pathologists or radiologists have seen these, heard of these, um, and so. Um, I will get it um, removed um, the end of July, um, but super, super thankful that it was caught super early. Um, would have never known it was there probably until I was 60 or felt it. And so, yeah, just super thankful that we got the ABUS and for this technology and um, for the trained radiologist and pathologist um, because a lot of these are misdiagnosed too um, if the biopsies doesn't have the right cells in them. So I thought possibly um, a lot of young women get fibroadenomas, so a lot of those are benign and no big deal. Um, and so I thought maybe that or assist. We've been seeing some artifacts with the, just getting a baseline with the ABUS and getting used to that. So yeah, very thankful that it was caught and seen and that we can um, take care of it because who knows what it would have been later on. A lot of them can come back as papillomas. Um, they have to do the core and the core has to have like a epithelial and myoepithelial cells within the core. Um, this lesion was four millimeters, so <laughs> teeny, teeny, tiny. So the fact that we got four cores through um, the lesion um, is awesome with Dr. Cross and the radiologist that we have. I don't think that I probably would have ever known it was there until I felt it because I'm so young I don't have any risk factors. Um, so the fact that they just needed some training and got this um, is great. Yeah. Well yes, I've heard that they have found like small lesions but never thought it was going to be, yeah, me. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm glad that we can catch things as small and where the outcome can be good. It's great, um, so I do breast ultrasound and we can do the handheld completes, um, but it takes us a really long time, depending on the breast size and kind of maneuvering the patient. So the fact that they can do a full breast scan, getting the whole area covered um, in a short amount of time is amazing, yeah. It helps our jobs and we just get to do the targeted when something comes back to make sure it's all okay. We love it. Ryan Morris and Jennifer Gardner talking with reporters recently at Carl Health Pekin Hospital. More Week in Review coming up. There's a new place for kids to play in Peoria. The Peoria Family YMCA, thanks to a grant and local volunteers, installed a brand new playground at their facility. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Andy Thornton, President and CEO at the Greater Peoria Family YMCA. And about two months ago, I think it's been two months, what is it, July? Yeah, it's been about two months. We were able to install this beautiful playground just before our summer camp program started. And we wanted to take some time today just to thank those that helped us do that and kind of mark this occasion with a ribbon cutting because it is a very useful and important asset to the work that we do here at the YMCA, especially in the area of youth development. Standing with me today are several and I think there's another group coming up here. So standing with me are several of our kids who get to benefit and play 
on this playground throughout the day. Um, many of these kids are in our summer day camp program or our teen reach program, which in essence is kind of like a day camp program, but for older kids. Um, so it was, we haven't had a playground for a couple years. We had an old playground here out at the Y and we had to take it down because it was an old wooden playground. It was falling apart. And then we were able to work with some of our community partners who are talk about just in a minute to bring this new playground to life. So um, started out, we applied for a Kaboom grant. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Kaboom grant or not, but a Kaboom grant is a uh, funding mechanism that starts us on the pathway of developing this new program. So they provided us with some resources, and then they provided us with some access to discounted supplies. Um, but the neat thing about a Kaboom grant is, is they require you to recruit local partners to help you build this grant. It's called a community build. And we were able to do that through the Peoria Rotary Club. Several of their representatives are here today. Um, and they supplied a lot of volunteers for us to build this grant. So we, or build this playground. We built this playground in two days, a Friday and a Saturday um, to get, and actually it was only about half of a Saturday because we had so much help to get this done. So we want to thank Peoria Rotary for helping us with that. They supplied us with a $10,000 grant to, su to support the funding of the playground. Um, and the, the total cost of the playground was roughly about 50. And then they supplied us with the manpower, which I think we had, Emily, 15 or so volunteers and their children that were here to help us put this, this playground together. Other funders that helped supply the grant, Blue Cross Blue Shield gave us a grant to support this. Um, and with the Kaboom grant, I think we had about $30,000 total there and then the Y provided the funding for the rest of it. Um, we also had additional support from the Richwoods football team. They've sent some football players down here to help us build it. We needed some muscle and they helped us do that. And then Peoria Heights High School sent about 12 or so students over here with a couple of teachers um, to help us get this thing built. And then we had some staff from the YMCA. So we just wanted to take a moment, mark the occasion, celebrate with our kids. Guys, do you like this playground? Yeah! Well, there it goes. It's unanimous, right? It's unanimous. Much better than last year's playground? Yeah, yeah because there wasn't one. We are here celebrating the installment of the brand new, brand new playground here at the YMCA. Talking about the playground here, uh, kids are already on it, they're playing, they're having fun. Yeah, so we got a grant from uh, Kaboom, which is a playground grant that we were able to um, obtain. And we actually got the grant award um, a couple of years ago, but during COVID, everything was kind of delayed and pushed back. But the grant is um, a program that provides funding for new playground development in local communities. And the neat thing about the grant is it requires us to get additional supporters, volunteers, and funders to help bring this thing to life. So we partnered with the Peoria Rotary Club and they provided a significant grant, $10,000 grant to work towards this project. And then they also provided the manpower because we've had to have volunteers constructed. Um, so the Kaboom uh, organization um, partners with another group called Team Real, R-E-I-L, and they provide a, a contractor supervisor who comes and leads our volunteers to build this project. So this was done, constructed with total volunteer manpower. 
other than that one person who they supplied to lead the project, the expert, right? Um, and then in two days, we built this playground in uh, mid-May, right before our camp season. And now our kids are here to be able to enjoy it every day and play on it and just have some free recreation. It's a fun um, activity space for them. How much did the playground cost in total? It was close to $50,000 in total. We were able to secure over $30,000 in funding um, from the Rotary Club, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and from the Kaboom Foundation. And then the, that funding was about 27000 according to the press release, so uh, the 23000 came from you guys then? Yeah, then the Y, we had some funds set aside too to help with this, so we had a little more than half of it donated, and then the other close to half was provided by us, and all of the labor was donated as well, which is not included in that total cost. You talk about the uh, playground being an important asset for the Y here. Yeah, it absolutely is. We have about, on a daily basis right now in the summertime, about 150 kids that are in our summer programs. And they need a place like this to go and just have some free time, right? We have a lot of structured activities for them throughout the day. We do a lot of arts and crafts, a lot of STEAM activities, a lot of physical activity. But they need to just burn off some energy and just have some free time, right? And play with them for themselves. And that's what this space provides. And this wasn't here last year, according to the remarks you said. No, it wasn't. We've actually been without it for a couple of years. Our old playground had, had gotten into disrepair and we had to take it down. And we went a couple of summers without it while we worked on the development of this. Uh, so we were happy to have it in place before the summer started this year. Now it's here, you're seeing the kids playing on it. What are some of your thoughts, feelings, emotions? It just makes me happy to see the kids have fun. Some of the things that we've lost, um, just in general across our society, are the, the, the freedoms for children to go out and play. For kind of that free, creative spirit of using their mind just to think for themselves and play and burn off that energy. Oh, yeah. To have a space like this where they can just go and enjoy, um, it makes me happy. Uh, any future projects for the kids in the summer camps or just in general here at the Y? No, not at this time. We're always thinking and planning, but nothing official that we can speak to at this point. Um, but we're just happy to have this in place and have our Rotarian partners here with us to help celebrate. Peoria Family YMCA head Andy Thornton talking in part with WMBD's TJ Carson. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us again next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and at WMBDRadio.com. Or just download the Week in Review podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.